Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight we are finally finishing up what we've been working on for ten months, and we are going to be covering the top five horror B movies of nineteen eighty nine. Tonight might be the the weakest list. Do you say since maybe the early eighties? Yeah, I don't think I think eighty two was pretty bad, or eighty one maybe. Yeah, well, one of those early lists that was kind of tough to find stuff. So, why do you think that is necessarily that we start we start a little weak, I think. We have a number of years, especially, I think, as you get to the mid-80s and then late 80s, you have a number of years that have really good, solid B-movies. Right. And then now we're starting to dip back down. And then we've talked briefly before about the idea that the 90s, I think you've said before that everything kind of moves more to home video now, yeah. like releases, and it gets really bad in the '90s. So this this list is actually the start of that specifically, um, and the first movie. Like I'll talk about that some when we get to it. Um, horror was just kind of dying out as a box office draw, and honestly, this is a really dead period for the box office theatrically in general. Um, if you look at like, just like you know. This is pre-multiplex um, cinema era, so most of your movie theaters are still, you know, two-plexes, three-plexes, like, concrete box theaters. Like, they weren't, wasn't a whole lot of, like, standalone, like, major theaters. Um, and I think that, you know, people were just kind of burned out on horror movies at this point. Um, and this is also around the time when um VHS tapes go from being like 60 to 80 to 100 dollars upon initial release to being able to go to like you know Kmart or whatever and buy a VHS tape for 14.99 so there was a lot more profitability to be made and not like cuz you know it's really expensive to produce like film like actual like you know mylar film copies of movies are like expensive and the distribution, you know, and the logistics of getting them to theaters and then having to, like, broker the arrangements, especially when you consider that, you know, you don't have, like, 13 to 18 theaters, to sh- like, screens to show. You have one or two. So, for somebody to show, like, to take a chance on a horror movie, especially if, like, the box office has been declining on it, it's just not going to happen. So, I think a lot of companies were like the major studios were kind of moving away from the idea of creating horror movies. And this is like the burgeoning era of the direct to video studios. Um, you know, trauma coming into their own, uh, full moon again, something we'll talk about in a couple minutes, but full moon features like just starting up. Um, you know, there's just not a lot of like space, I think in the marketplace at this point for, for horror. Now we're all five of these movies, theatrical releases. Um, at least one was not, okay. definitely. <clears throat> um, let me think. Yeah, I, I, I think four of the five were theatrically, theatrically released. Mm-hmm. Um, I know definitely one was not, like 100% was not theatrically released. <clears throat> so, how quickly does this happen in the 90s? Is it pretty immediate? Like, does yeah. it start pretty much the next year after this? So, Full Moon Features releases, like, something ridiculous, like, 20 films between, like, 1990 and 1992. Mm -hmm. Um, Troma has a ton of stuff in the early 90s. 
and it's like three or four movies, <clears throat> sometimes like five or six movies a year. Um, and then there's other studios like, uh, you had, um, fuck, who was that? There was one Kino maybe video started buying like the rights to older movies and releasing them as like four ninety nine specials on like really cheap, like SP videotapes with like minimal box art that you could buy in places like, like Woolworths always had a, mm. a box, like a huge like bin of like four ninety nine movies. Or I don't know if you remember this, but um Acme, the grocery yes. store used to have like a huge rack. Yep. Like as you were walking into where the cash registers were, that was nothing but like, Five to fifteen dollar VHS tapes. So, well, is this when they were also running movies as well, Acme? They were, but then they would take their older, right? They would take the older ones and right and sell them, them out, right? And then eventually they stopped running movies, and it was just all like direct to video crap for the most part. Sure. Um, but I, you had these I, companies that could release like large amounts of you know just whatever, like mm-hmm. low budget, poorly produced videos, and like. I mean, as a kid, I would buy, I would just take a chance on, you know, like, I mean, I, especially around like the mid nineties, early to mid nineties when I got my first job, um, where if I had like 20 or $30 extra, like I would just buy like two or three VHSs just to take a chance on something. And like a lot of times it was absolute shit, but you know, sometimes it was pretty good. And they also could make a lot of money selling them to video stores because video stores would just buy like dozens of new release horror movies you know every month and then you know cycle through them i mean movie king at one point had like two dedicated aisles to horror and a lot of it was direct-to-video stuff so yeah so is is the fact that studios just so i clearly understand is the fact that studios don't see any profitability in it. The reason for the decline in the quality as well is because not as much money is being pumped into horror movies at this point. Right. Well, you're in the heyday. Well, not the heyday. You're in like the declining like era of the major studio system where it was really just, you know, Universal, Paramount, um, Sony Pictures, um, MGM, uh, Fox. You know, you had like... Like, Disney's not putting out any horror movies, you know? So, you have, like, maybe, like, 10 studios that are putting out movies. And they're not going to put out something that's not going to be profitable. I mean, there really was, like, a pretty long gap where you rarely saw, like, maybe a couple times a year you would get a major release horror movie. Mm -hmm. Stuff like, um, like, Frailty or, um, I don't know. Just, like, you would see it, like, occasionally. Or you'd have something... That ended up being a bomb, like, uh, what is the Invisible Man movie with, um, I think Kevin Bacon, right? Where he yes. takes the invisible serum and right. becomes yeah, I like a villain. Movie, yeah. Which is almost as much like a sci-fi movie as a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's like Frighteners in 95 or 96, whenever that came out. Right. Is really the first horror movie I remember seeing for like a long time in the theater and then scream kind of like reinvigorated. Is that what you credit it with the scream pretty much? Like yeah. Cause terms- frighteners was a bomb. Right. And oh, right. Yeah. We actually like, I remember being really excited to go see scream in the theater. I saw it on opening night. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like shit, like this is, oh, 
See, I had like New Nightmare in whenever that is, like 94, 95. Um, that was good and I think did okay at the box office. But like, they just weren't making any money and the studios weren't going to invest in it. So you have that. And then you also have like, move like you know movies like pulp fiction and um big night and you know uh bullets over broadway like movies that were like moderately successful commercially that allowed like independent studios to start producing stuff and then you kind of see like sort of a return but i mean really up until like the ring i would say it's mostly teens in peril horror for like the late nineties or the early two thousands. Um, the, the J horror influence, like the ring and, right. um, dark water and the grudge. Like those are the ones that really kind of pushed back, like real, like serious horror back into theaters. And even then this still is like kind of a, <clears throat> really it's hit or miss. Um, you know, the saw franchise sort of, right. And the saw franchise in the mid, mid to late two thousands. Um, like stuff like The Conjuring and uh, Insidious and um, uh, what's that one? Sinister. Like there's all those that like throughout, like into like the 2010s, like and up to the modern that, you know, kind of like get those 80 to $100 million box offices and sort of like give studios um, kind of the incentive to produce the stuff. But now you have all the streaming services too, so... Mm-hmm. You know, in 30 years, it's gone from, like... I mean, it's the same idea. You know, I can sit there and Shudder has, like, two or three exclusives every week. Right. And seriously, like, 50% of what they put out as exclusives are actually, like, really good movies. Or at least, like, serviceable. So, it's it's it, it's actually probably, like, right now... The mid-80s is, like, the first, like, real golden age of, like, horror. From, like, the mid-70s to the mid-80s is, like, that period there. You get a lot of really good stuff with like a a number of people that would go on to become like renowned directors like producing movies and then you have this big glut where it's a lot of direct-to-video schlock and just like mostly about like showing boobs and showing blood and then from like maybe two like in the past like five years i would say six years like it's gone back to now horror movies are actually looked at as like an art form and they can be classy and they can provoke right. like discussion and people are taking them more seriously. And there's been a lot in the past, like five or six years that rank like pretty high on like my, if I had to make like a top 100 list, like, mm-hmm. you know, that would be on that. But this period 89 is really like the huge decline of like studios backing horror movies and moving into more of like the direct to video market and people not really being sure how to, how to approach that so okay i want to talk a little bit more like generally about the 80s and stuff like that and we're gonna after we get through 89 we're gonna talk about the top movies of that decade like a kind of like a top five just taking all of the lists into account that yeah we've been through but i also want to talk a little bit more and kind of like wrap up this whole thing with some more discussion of 80s horror versus you know in in, a, in its context and time like of horror movies and stuff like that but um you want to go ahead and jump into 89? Yep. Was there anything that you had that you thought about putting on this list and didn't? Or is it that week of the year? I mean, 
the number five movie was probably interchangeable with a couple other things, and I can't really think of anything specifically. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I chose this as number five. Number one, because it has a really strong nostalgic um, connection for me, but also because it really is like... It's 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 the first feature from Full Moon Features, which Full Moon was like the major, like Full Moon and Troma alternatingly were like the major like direct-to-video studios of like the 90s, at least from my perspective of watching, watching movies. Okay, um, so number five that you're talking about on your list is Puppet Master. It is directed by David Schmoller, uh, starring Paul Lamott. Irene Miracle. Why do I know Irene Miracle? Was she one? She was in another one of these movies. Yeah, I'll look it up. But um, Jimmy Skaggs, Matt Rowe. It has a fifty percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a forty percent from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you picked it? So it's the it's the first movie in one of the most prolific horror franchises like ever, um, involving. An aging puppeteer in the 1930s named Andre Toulon, who, um, using Egyptian magic, creates living puppets, um, each of which has like a like a special defense slash attack feature to it. Um, he kills himself because the Nazis are trying to steal like his technology or whatever his magic. Um, fast forward to the modern day, there's this group of morally questionable psychic slash magicians um who gather together at the behest of like their colleague who's died um who's discovered like the puppets and has kind of taken them over and turned them to evil um they're basically stalked and murdered in this hotel um over the course of like a night by the puppets um who eventually turn on the guy who's not really dead He's kind of like found the way to achieve mortality and then they kill him. And that's the start of the franchise. Um, <clears throat> it introduces, I guess, if you know the puppet master franchise, it introduces like some of the more iconic puppets, um, in blade and leech woman and pinhead and tunneler. And, uh, um, I okay, who else is in this con, I guess. Um, it's not like, a well-filmed movie, um, not a very well-written movie, but I really, like, I, I love, I, I have a large amount of affection for stop-motion puppetry and animation, um, particularly from, like, my childhood with, like, the Ray Harryhaus and stuff, and then Clash of the Titans, like, I just love, like, that form of animation, like, the jankiness of it, and um, I, I like stylistically, like I like the looks of the puppets a lot. And this is a movie that I rented um, a few times pretty early on, like in my early teens, I guess. Because I, I rented this, I rented it pretty much when it came out because it was released in 89 and I'm pretty sure I rented it in 89. Um, you know, and my sensibilities back then weren't quite as like whatever refined or as they are, but I really enjoyed it. Like I like... I, it, it's creepy to me. I don't really find like living toys to be super scary. Like that's not a thing that bothers me, but it was sort of a connection to the doll and um, the clown doll and poltergeist. I kind of felt with like the way that like the faces are done and the way that the puppets look and just the idea of like these tiny, like 
four inch like dolls like scurrying around like people's feet and then like attacking them unseen and um that i think is pretty cool and again like i i love the production design of this movie like i love the way the puppets look um and there's a lot of nostalgia there for it and it's also on this list because you know and i already kind of said this like full moon released probably close to like 50 or 60 movies in the 90s um they did this franchise which has 10 installments plus a bunch of crossovers Demonic Toys, which is actually a ripoff of this franchise that they ripped off their own franchise for. Um, Subspecies, which is their uh, vampire franchise. Um, Trancers, which is like their sci-fi horror franchise. Fuck, I forgot about a lot of these, yeah. Um, Dollman, they produced a couple Dollman movies, which mm-hmm. is sort of like the tiny like protagonist slash antagonist to the Puppet Master Demonic Toys franchises. And a bunch of other stuff like Castle Freak, which is a pretty, like, well-known B-horror from this time. And Full Moon, just, like, this is their start. Like, this is their first feature. Yeah. So, this was supposed to be released theatrically um, in 89. And, like, I guess because of the expense and, like, just their uncertainty, they released a direct-to-video. And then, like, everything they... I I think everything they made after that was direct-to-video. I don't know if Full Moon... Maybe Full Moon's had a couple of, like, theatrical releases. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I mean, they've really like dominated like a lot of the store shelves. They have the Killjoy franchise, which is about like a murderous revenant clown or something. And I mean, like none of their movies are like great, but they're also not terrible ever. Like they're all watchable and they churn, they were churning them out like crazy. Like there's a lot of installments of all these Mm. movies. I watched castle freak recently. Um, in the past month or so because well you've probably seen because uh, i we're past we're sharing your shutter right. <laughs> now um which i'm still bitter that you accused me of trying to steal your password from last week um <clears throat> you probably don't remember that on I the don't. podcast that she said that like i was like i plotted to get it from you and it's <laughs> like yeah I, we I bought so many damn movies where you didn't give me that Shutter account all year. Right. I spent so much money on these damn B movie lists, and you're going to sit there and. Try I don't them. know why you didn't ask because I mean I just because I'm not going to ask. I like uh, if somebody offers. I've been watching my Hulu account for like two years now, so. And you offered that too, right? I'm, um, I'm a gentleman. So. We probably use that Hulu account more than you did. Right. I only watched like two things on it. <laughs> So I watched Castle Freak because I've been watching the Joe Bob Briggs stuff on Shutter, right? Um, because I was I loved Joe Bob like yeah, back really in the good. day. Like so, um, I've been going through some of those movies like occasionally just put them on in the background and listen to him and watching the movies. So I had not seen Castle Freak since whatever year it came out when I was a child. Um. <clears throat> So, yeah, I, I remember some of those movies, and I forgot about a lot of those franchises. I did not know anything about Full Moon. Like, I'm not yeah. aware of any of that kind of stuff or production houses, like, in terms of horror a lot of times. and um, But... Uh, they still exist today. Do they? Mm-hmm. Are they there's putting a, out decent movies? or? They- I mean, I haven't watched it yet, but there's a reboot of Puppet Master called The Littlest Reich mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. just came out recently. That's so, on Shutter, right? Yeah. Yeah. that's on my list of things that i'm probably going to watch someday when i'm bored right now about this movie specifically you're like there's been a lot of hedging in your language just because you know that i don't didn't like this but um yeah i hated this movie like i i 
it was maybe it's definitely in the top five movies out of this entire decade that you've had me watch. It's in the top five, like things that I just hated watching. And I think part of it's rational. I think part of it's irrational. There was just mm. something about the look of this movie that I just could not stand. Yes. It's, it's very garish in the way that it looks like it's very, if, if it feels fake, I guess like it feels like you're watching almost like a second rate movie, which I guess it is because it's a B movie. But yeah, it feel it feels like uh, it feels like porns from the eighties, right? There's like, very little artistry to it. It's kind of just like right, and then and there's like no artistry to it. It's like there's nothing you necessarily unique or captivating about the camera work in it. Like it just feels like they're just setting up a camera in a room and filming some people right. do stuff, and it's like. Oh, well, well, we have this bathroom, so it's like, how are we going to shoot this? Well, let's just set the camera here, and that's the best we can do. Uh, nothing, it was just so just kind of plodding along, I thought. I thought the acting was atrocious. It's really bad. In it, um, I didn't understand why Barbara Crampton, like, shows up in, like, well, I was getting ready to say the first five minutes, but um, the first scene itself is, like, 15 minutes long for no reason. Right, because there's that interminably long, like... There's, like, four introductions. Blade running, like, through the hotel. Yes. Like, in circles sometimes. So they... But they, they, they steal the Sam Raimi, um, like, low, like, yeah. point-of-view cam. Uh-huh. Um, th- it's always terrible when they do that. And it's bad in all of these movies because even though they're puppets and they're, like, inanimate... Op- well, you know, like inanimate objects that have been animated like they breathe so they're always like huffing and puffing mm-hmm. but it's like they shouldn't be like doing right. that because they're not like alive right. really they're just yeah I don't know. but yeah there, there's just like no artistry to this i thought it was plotting i thought that i didn't i didn't even know who the main characters were till halfway through yeah because like i said i feel it seriously feels like there was like three to four introductions in this I mean, movie really the main characters are the one kind of good magic user or psychic with the bad hair, the wife of the guy, and then the bad guy himself who doesn't really get introduced until yeah there was there was nothing in terms of like criticism of this movie so I I, I just went through the um I had my own so it's, it didn't matter but I went through the audience and there was a lot of people that were just really confused about what's happening in this movie right it's not set up well it's it's really poorly plotted and like to the point where it's like I remember one person saying that they had. To- they had to go on Wikipedia and read the plot in order to understand what they were seeing on screen because there was like what there's like three psychics, two researchers, but one researcher's dead. It's like it's so damn just poorly done. Look, right? <laughs> you can say the whole Puppet Master franchise is kind of a mess because number one, they depending on what they want the movie to be, the puppets are either. They're protagonists sometimes. Sometimes they're like completely heroic. Sometimes they're completely evil. It's just like, it just depends on who's <clears throat> using Toulon's magic to control them. Right. Or like who has like sway over them. But like. Yeah, I, I, I think conceptually, <coughs> like the concept of this movie, I just don't like. Like, I just yeah. don't like the puppet stuff. Like, I think that's the irrational part is like, and I'm not scared of puppets. I'm not scared of dolls or anything like that. I just don't like the idea. And I like that a lot. Like, that's something that, yeah. like, is... I Again, like, I love 
the way they animate them. I, I think that they're, you know, I always thought they were really cool. Like I always wanted like puppet master action figures when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Um, and when they came out, like when I was more of an adult, they were, they were garbage. I don't, I wonder if there's actually good ones now, but, um, I don't know. I just, I always, it's, it reminds me of like watching a movie on like a Sunday afternoon, <coughs> like in my parents' bedroom. Cause it was the only time I could watch stuff. <coughs> hmm. Sorry. My throat's really dry for some reason. Um, so I can kind of forgive some of the worst parts of the movie. Mm. Look, it doesn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense in 1989. Doesn't make any sense now. Okay. I mean, it's it's like Egyptian magic, but then there's no real like link to the Egyptian stuff. And <clears throat> there's Nazis, but then the Nazis don't even matter like later in the movie. I don't know. It's, it's a mess. But I still think that like if you are able to watch like campy schlock, it still is like a serviceable movie and again like it spawns like a huge franchise so i think it's a really important movie in that respect yeah this movie <coughs> this movie felt way too long for it, being 90 minutes right it feels like like a two and a half hour movie yeah it, 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 that's that's my last complaint pal <laughs> it, it, it um it just felt really long for for something that was like, I seriously sat down to work watching this movie and was thinking, like, okay, I'm going to put this on while I'm working on my second screen. And I got, like, you know, you know, an hour's worth of work to do. It's like, I'll watch it and then finish, like, you know, just pay attention in the last half hour, like, exclusively. And, like, I got done my work in 30 minutes rather than 60 and like looked and I would have swore it took me 60 minutes not looking at the clock. And I was like, what the hell? There's still an hour left of this thing. Like, it, it, yeah. Um, Irene Miracle was the lead in uh, Inferno. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. That's that's why. I, knew I mean, She's in a bunch of other stuff, too. Like, I looked her up, too. So she's in Night Train Murders, which I like and. It's actually a Midnight Express, which is crazy. I haven't seen Midnight Express in forever. Oh, yeah. Um, Great theme song. And then she kind of stops. I mean, she didn't really do all that much for yeah, like a movie a year for a while. And I guess maybe just living off those Puppet Master royalties. Maybe. Um, okay, so is that everything about Puppet Master? Yeah, I don't think you need to say anything okay. else about it. All right. All right, so number four on your list is Pet Cemetery, the Stephen King novel adapted here, directed by Mary Lambert, starring Dale Midkiff, Denise Crosby, Fred Gwynn, and Miko Hughes. Have you seen Miko Hughes as an adult? No. Is he Gage? Yes, the kid. Okay. Yeah, 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 as an adult. Not ever what you would expect, like at all. Like I'll have to look it during up, the so break, I have to like have. You I have, look no, I have no expectations. And you, uh, and I think we've probably seen him in something and just didn't know it. Like would never know it because hmm. uh, this kid was prolific, right? Like Kindergarten Cop. This mm-hmm. there was like two or three other movies this kid was in. Like I, I reckon, like he has a very recognizable face. He for does. A child. Um, so it has a fifty percent from critics as well. Um. So people equate critics equate this the same as they do Puppet Master kind of, and um, it has a fifty five percent though from audiences. From That's surprising. Uh, so one thing after you kind of tell people a little bit about the movie, uh, this is probably the most famous movie I would think on this list mm. um, in terms of being well known. But right. after you tell them about it, I also want you to explain why this is why you why this is a B movie to me. 
because it's just something I was thinking about like recently. But um, right, it, it number one because it was a weak year. Okay. Honestly, yeah. Um, because this was a this was a full fledged theatrical release. Like I remember this movie being in theaters because I wasn't right. allowed to go see it, mm-hmm. and I remember the poster like being really scary to me. Right. Um. If if there was like a lot of better options, I probably would have taken it off just because of the classification. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I mean, there's another movie on this list is not a B movie either. I don't think really? by like the purest definition. Oh, okay. Um, but I think like I want to talk about Pet Cemetery. I don't know what other what other list Pet Cemetery would ever end up on. Sure. Um. So it's an adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Um. Just very quick summary. Doctor and his family move to a small town in Maine. Um, friendly neighbor shows them this place where um, if you bury the dead, the dead come back like pets. Um, cat gets hit by car. Cat comes back to life. Kid gets hit by car. Kid comes back to life. They come back wrong because they're possessed by like the evil spirits of the Micmac tribe. Um, and pretty much everybody like dies. And that's it. Um so, Pet Cemetery is not a great movie, but I think it's better than than fifty five percent of people liking it. Like I, it's it, it's a solid like C plus, and it's got some really memorable scenes. Which I think, when you talk to people about Pet Cemetery, I think there's specifically two scenes that people always think about, which is um, Gage cutting uh, Fred Gwynn's Achilles tendon. Under the bed, like, and, like, the clean slice through, like, the bare skin, which is really uncomfortable to watch. The, the Achilles tendon scene, Gage with the... Holding the scalpel. Yeah. Zelda. Zel- well, Zelda's the other one that I right. think about. So, there's a scene the, where... Those are the things that, like, the images that, like, I'll always have in my mind from this movie. The wife of the doctor, the mother, um, is talking about when... She was young. Her sister had um, spinal meningitis and was confined to bed. And her parents went away one night and left her alone to take care of her angry, like, constantly in pain sister. And um, there's just a scene with, like, the sister, like, all contorted in bed and then, like, kind of scrambling at her, which is, like, pretty horrifying. Um, Spinal meningitis was always, like, super scary to me for some reason. Like, I have this irrational phobia of spinal meningitis um <clears throat> so and the way they shoot that's really because <coughs> right, it's down the long hallway and it's well, like, right and it's like but i mean the the zelda itself when she's like scurrying and stuff like that like they use it almost like a fisheye don't they yeah yeah like a fish it's like first person fisheye lens so it's like really making it seem like she's coming like at you in the screen and she's just it's just grotesque it is really and, grotesque. It's yeah. really good, like, um, practical effects, too. The makeup yeah. Yeah. on the actor playing Zelda. Yeah, it terrified me when I was a kid. Um, right. To, to the point where, like, you have a room in your house <laughs> that um, I call the Zelda room. Because, right. like, when you walk up to it, it, it just looks like... Right. Like, that's where she is, like, back there. Right. Whole and not just you. It's, like, it's like everybody's just, like, taking that, like... And just... We call it the Zelda room. You're right. Like... Those <laughs> friends like, oh, I got the Zelda room up here. <laughs> um... The movie's serviceable enough. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty 
it, it's hard to faithfully tell a Stephen King novel on the screen because Stephen King puts so much extraneous like backstory on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that is just left out from the book. But I mean, the the major points, the major beats are hit. Um, from the beginning with like the Victor Pascal character getting killed and then appearing to him like in dreams, um, you know, throughout the whole, whatever, like the, the major events are all represented. Um, the acting's fine. Fred Gwynn is probably the best part of it. And the kid that plays Gage, um, it scared me when I was a kid. Like this is one of the movies that I was like really like carried with me as like a preteen because I saw this when it came out on VHS so I probably saw this in like 90 so I was probably 13 or 12 when I saw this movie um and I I found it to be pretty scary um it doesn't necessarily hold up that well I mean there's a lot of like flat moments to it and a lot of goofy shit but like the woods are cool like the Micmac burial ground is pretty cool um there's an we've we've talked about this too previously but there's an atrocious um remake of this movie that came out last this year i guess earlier this year yeah one of the worst worst adaptations i've ever seen um but you can still watch this like i watched this movie um i was dating a girl who had a a daughter who was like 8 or 9 when we were dating and i used to babysit her and we watched this together um and she enjoyed it. You know, Frankie enjoys enjoyed this movie when we mm-hmm. watched it. So I, I think as long as you don't expect too much, like it's fine and it's like watchable and yeah. you can kind of overlook some of the, some of the overacting, like the father overacts, the yeah, mother look, overacts. I, you, you said that the acting was like, like, this movie's fine. Like, I still think it's okay. Like, um, I was never as high on it when I was even younger. Like, I thought there was like... When I became a teenager and thought about it, like, I was never that high on right. it. Like, it was just fine. Um, but I think the acting is terrible in this. Like, I hate Denise Crosby. Like, she's terrible. Uh, she was terrible on Star Trek Next Gen. <laughs> like, she was terrible in this. Like, um, the, the dad's bad as well. Like, he, yes. said, like, he overacts a lot. Yeah. And there's a lot of histrionics between the two of them that just are not. Yes. <clears throat> like if th- this movie would actually be much, much better if you had more capable actors in those two. Roles. Right. That's true. It actually probably would be like a classic. Of, sure. Right. If I, those yeah. performances. Were yeah, you take two like good actors of the time period and put them in it and like it's. Yeah. Cause the kids are fine. And Fred. Oh Gwynn, yeah. Gage is good. And Fred, Fred Gwynn's good. Fred, yeah. Fred Gwynn does a great job. Like Absolutely. he's the best part of the movie probably. Sure. Sure. Um, and the, the practical effects are, are good in the Is movie. it Lithgow? Is that who was in the um, sequel that, or the remake that just came out? John Lithgow? Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's only been a couple months since I, well, I don't know. Right. Maybe more than a couple months. But yeah, bad. I think it's like a big bearded John Lithgow, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, um, there's not really much to say about it. Like, yeah. again, there's like a few scenes that are really, in my opinion, like iconic, like, horror images from like this time period but beyond that like you know it's it's not a bad way to spend 90 minutes if you have nothing else to do so our good friend um dave kerr wrote about this movie in the chicago tribune so when he writes for chicago reader it's always the short pithy uh chicago tribune when he writes for them their full-length reviews uh so he says that a uh, horror novelist Stephen King makes sentences like "wonder makes bread" soft and substantial, easy to digest. 
but there's no denying that he's a popular artist of uncommon gifts. Under the guise of the supernatural thriller, his books books deal indirectly but powerfully with significant pressure points in American culture. His favorite themes are the dangerous imbalance of power between the individual and the group and the treacherous instability of the American nuclear family, very real subjects that he transforms into wild flights of violent fancy. Those two themes, imaginally interlaced, are very much present in this film. Like all of King's supernaturally empowered protagonist, Telekinetic Carry, or the Clairvoyant in the Dead Zone, Lewis selfishly abuses his special gifts and is destroyed by them. But Pet Cemetery has a deeper, less blatantly moralistic dimension. Unable himself to accept death, the young doctor has placed his hopes for immortality in his son, yet when the transformed child turns against him, the boy uses his father's scalpel to kill, the image is one of repressed edible rage suddenly released, a mortal struggle between parent and child. There's a crazy dark poetry here, but Barry Lambert's direction of Pet Cemetery captures none of it, and the film falls into a flat, frequently laughable literalism. Wholly devoid of atmosphere and nuance, cursed by cardboard performances, Pet Cemetery follows the same sad route taken by most of King's fiction on its way onto the screen. Reduced to its plot outlines, King's work no longer functions. Its meaning lies in the obscure tensions and anxiety that shape the fantasy, not in what happens, but why. Yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah. That's fine. That's actually a pretty good review of this movie. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I think that there's scenes that are powerful mm-hmm. just because they're imaginative or they're well-filmed. But there's also a lot of stuff that's really just flat. And I don't know. I mean, it, it's true. Like... There are really very, very few King adaptations. And he he hits the nail on the head. And it's because you're trying to distill, you know, I mean, most of King's stuff is like 500 to 1,000 pages with a lot of like backstory and internal monologue. Sure. And, you know, like you can't capture, right. like the, the, the point about the doctor, like, you know, being afraid of death and mortality in the fact that he sees like this young, like promising college student like die. And then, you know, can't accept the fact that, like, and that he can let anyone die. Like, he has to try and save everybody. You know, was is there a way they could have filmed that better? Probably. You know, they could have written it better. It could be, like you said, better performances, but they don't. Right. You know, and, like, it's just tough, I think, to capture that. I mean, I don't know. There's four or five, like, decent King adaptations on film, and most of them are just garbage. Sure. That, like, always, like, completely missed the point of, like, what made the story. Right. And as I've gotten older, I find King to be almost, like... Actually, modern King is so much better than, like, anything that he's ever written before. Like, he's actually kind of found some semblance of balance where he can tell a story without, like, being overwrought. And it's actually crisp in his... Because he's always been really good with ideas. Like, the idea of Stephen King's stories are always much better than the execution. Sure. Um, but yeah, like, I yeah. don't know. Well, he's, I mean, he, there's a lot of writers that have a lot of their stuff adapted, like modern, like writers in the past, like 20 or 30 years. And they, like Grisham, we'll say, we'll take him, Michael Crichton, like people that have had a lot of adaptations. Right. Um, they're novelists, but they still tend to write to some degree, almost like with screenwriting in the back of their mind. At times. Sure. Like, Grisham, 
focuses on dialogue, kind of description of room and character. And that's pretty much it. Like, there's not a lot of, like, and there's some internal motivation, you know, internal dialogue and those kind of things that go on. But nothing that can be registered by an actor, a skilled actor in the role. So it's like he almost writes his novels as if he's writing the screenplay itself. Like it's almost like he's still he's giving him roadmap to the to the adaptation for the screenplay. King never does that. No. Like he's at also all. writing a lot more fantastical. Sure. Sure. And it's like so I do think it's really hard to adapt a lot of his stuff. Right. I think it's why like Misery ends up being a really good adaptation is because it is a smaller novel. Like, usually his smaller novels can sometimes turn into... Sure, Carrie is a good example. Sure. they Because I think that he is restrained in some ways with Oshiro novels that um, they become better adaptations because I think there's more... There's an easier way to do it. Like, right. the story isn't. But it's like, yeah, when you try to do, like, The Stand or It or, you know, like, any I, of those big novels... I'm really interested in seeing the Stand television series. The adaptation. CBS one that they're doing. Is it on CBS? I think it's CBS All Access, yeah. Um, oh shit, it's another thing I'll have to subscribe to then. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see like sure. what it's like. Right. Yeah, no, I'll be interested in seeing. I mean, I did not like the second part of It. We, no, we, terrible. Yeah, it was really bad. And then, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but some of his longer novels, I mean, it, it it's it's the director that and screenwriter sure. that matter. Like, can you take, like, can, like Kubrick takes... Honestly, The Shining is one of my least favorite King novels because it's just too much, right? Like extra nonsense in it. Sure. Um, but Kubrick takes it and distills like the major like points from it, and then creates something like entirely new that I think is like superior to the original product. Absolutely. I mean, and it's... honestly, like I kind of feel that way about Dead Zone. Like I think Dead Zone the movie is a better telling of that story than the actual book like the book is plotting i also agree with that too long sure um and honestly and we'll wrap up like this after this but Mm -hmm. like the castle rock television series is doing that same thing and Mm -hmm. this new season we talked about this earlier the first through through three episodes has like amazed me with how he's taken like the ideas of king's characters and settings and they've made it something entirely new Mm-hmm. and still relevant and interesting and and a lot of that has to do with the performances and just like the general story they're telling in the second season but it's it's been really really good so mm-hmm. i also want to mention because i don't think i'll ever get a chance to mention this like really because we talked about the shining episode one maybe i can't remember like um so we've we've talked about that movie before but uh just last month or earlier in this month, I, uh, a friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster, and I went to go see it on a revival, like re release, like one night only type thing where it was in 4K. And I was really suspicious about seeing it in 4K just because there's something about things that are filmed. I mean, it's 1980, right. but it has that 70s sensibility, 70s colors, and all that. I was really suspicious about seeing it. And if you have a chance, like, if they do this again, they probably, I don't know if they would or not, but it's like, if you get a chance to see it in 4K on the screen, and I've seen it on the screen non-4K, um, which I would also recommend, but I thought it was amazing looking. Like, I, I was really suspicious of how it would look, because I don't like, what's the damn uh, line that uh, 
Wells had like his attributed deathbed quote is a keep keep Turner and his damn Crayola's away from my movie. (laughs) Um, It's like I have the same feeling about some of this 4K stuff of like how much do you have to manipulate it? And are you losing something from the original by through the manipulation, um, digital manipulation? So I was really suspicious. Now, the only thing I thought was the outdoor scenes looked a little weird at times um, in 4K. But that's really just like the, the... Almost the things in the background as opposed to the foreground look right. weird to me. But the internals, like the, the the interior shots, like the coloring is some of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I read afterwards it helped that like there was a couple different consultants that worked on that film that sat down with them when they did this 4K uh, transition and talked, you know, and helped them out with like the color schemes and all that kind of stuff of what things really should look like. That's interesting. So it was... um. Yeah, it was like it wasn't like watching a new movie, but I thought it really enhanced the movie if that was kind of what it really looked like. I mean, I feel like that makes sense because Kubrick made movies that were meant to be watched on the big screen, right? Because I've seen the original Transfer of the Shining, like an original, you know, whatever film, Mm -hmm. and it was amazing, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was it was it was really impressive. I uh, even though I'm suspicious of that technology, that was really well done. So I just wanted to mention that because I'll probably never get a chance to mention it again on here. Um, any final thoughts on this? No, I mean whatever. You know, it's <laughs> it's 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 pet cemetery. All right, let's just keep moving through this list. Right. <laughs> this is a this is like really like a one or two movie list. Like, I'm really excited to talk about the number one and number two. Yeah. Number one especially. Yeah. Um, so number three on your list is Society, directed by Brian Usna. Yep. Uh, it stars Billy Warlock of Baywatch fame and the, what did you... Days, Days of, of Our, our lives, lives fame to me. Days of Our Lives fame. Right, he's probably... Uh, Devin DeVasquez, Evan Richards. It has a 55% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 51% from audiences. Well, moving up in one, one sphere and moving down in another. Yeah, so... Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it? Um, it's a pretty simple plot. Uh, Billy Warlock is a high school basketball star, um, adopted son of wealthy socialite parents. Um, doesn't really feel connected to his his family at all. Feels like he's different than them. Mm-hmm. It turns out he is because his family is part of an elite group of body altering cannibalistic orgy attenders. Um, who rule like upper crust society in Beverly Hills and he's not so (laughs) right um it's actually like so this this movie was kind of a holy grail for a long time because it wasn't one that you could rent actively like it was very difficult to find a copy of it and I didn't see it until probably 95 or 96 when I went to a um comic book convention and had to spend like $30 on like a bootleg VHS transfer of it. Um, but like, there's not a whole lot of horror in this movie necessarily. Like it's a lot of very slow exposition of him being like, number one, Billy Warlock is not a good actor and the character Billy Warlock plays is an idiot. Mm. So, and a horn dog idiot. Mm hmm. So there's not a whole lot of sympathy you have for him necessarily throughout the movie. Really, like, the thing that that I always remember about the movie and, like, in my... Because it's been a long time since I've seen Society before watching it this week. All I remember is the end. 
Right. Like the grotesqueness of like sure. the bodies melting together and right. just like the shunting. Right. Is what they call it. Yeah, the shunting. Um it's it's grotesque. Yes. And it was like it was things that you would see like shots from it in like Fangoria or whatever and think like, oh my god, this movie must be like amazing. And then it wasn't, but like in ninety five, ninety six, whenever I was still like so excited to finally see it that I think I didn't mind so much. Mm-hmm. And this it's not a bad movie. Like it's right. it's it's okay. It feels very plastic. Like it feels very like everything it feels like a set. You know, like we we talked about Halloween last week and how like when you're watching that movie, even though it was filmed in California, like you you feel like it's in Illinois. Like it mm-hmm. feels like a living Sure. Community. The Beverly Hills of a society never feels like it's real. Right. It feels like just a series of like sets that are like not even interconnected. Right. Um the performances are pretty poor overall. Mm-hmm. Um I mean Yuzna was the producer of um Reanimator and From Beyond. Um I don't know if this is his first directorial effort, but it's pretty early. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what else he directed, but that was always another thing that, like, you know, was added to, like, the mythos of this movie. You know, in, like, the pre-internet days. is like, oh, the guy from Reanimator. And, again, just, like, seeing the shots. I mean, it's fine. And it's a relatively broad stroke, like, childish look at the difference between the rich and the poor. Like, it's a very common trope of, like, you know, the rich eating the poor. And this is, like, the literal interpretation of that and just the idea that like the wealthy are like almost like alien to like normal people um which again is plus they're incestuous right right and again this is like something you think of when you're like 17 years old you know and you think that you're all profound and like edgy to have these thoughts but it's really just like the most like basic except for he was 40 right this really, was, this was his directorial debut, by the way. Okay, I thought so. I couldn't think of anything else he'd done. Um, very basic trope, but I love the practical effects in it. Um, I like some of like the sort of almost like hyper mocking of the idea of the characters from something like Better Off Dead or One Crazy Summer, um, with like the rich you know, playboy style, like bully something like maybe, um, 16 candles, uh, whatever his name is. Um, Mm -hmm. who is that? Eric Stoltz character in that or whatever. Right. Um, and like, just like a hyper exaggeration of that. And it sort of also plays into like the next movie on this list, which I, they're, they're very similar, but the next movie on the list is actually like more insightful commentary onto it like more like able filmmaking in terms of like social commentary and parody on a horror background where this is just like, this is like the big Mac version of that, I guess. Like you're not actually getting a meal. It's just like a disposable thing that. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. It just feels like the social commentary is trite. Right. It's, 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 it's very broad. Like I was expecting it to be more like, I don't know, thoughtful. Right. But it's then, and I was like waiting for it the entire time. Like, I mean, I enjoyed watching this movie. Sure, it's I, a fun I, movie. 
like, but it's not. Like I just shit all over it, but it's yeah, not, it's, it's, it's not, not it's, a bad. Well, because it's not that good, but it's like, but it was it was a fun movie to watch to some degree, right? Um, for the first, I think, 50, 60 minutes, you can kind of do something else while you're watching it and still kind of follow along with the whole thing. It's true. And then the last, and because all it is, you're waiting till the shunting, right? And that is like the it's seriously that's the, the centerpiece last, of this, and it's like the last half hour of the movie. Uh, it's it's even less than that, man. Is it? Like I had to pause twenty it. minutes. I had to pause it to do something, and I was like, "When does this movie? Like, when does this shit happen? Like, I remember because yeah. I've remembered it happening." So in my mind, like remembering it, there's very little body horror that happens in this movie until the shunting at the end. Right. There's a couple instances where he sees people that he feels are like distorted in some way. Right. Like the fucking dude going and like opening his sister's shower door while she's like showering mm-hmm. and not having any compulsion about like, you right. know, or any compunction about doing it. Yeah. And then when he's having sex with like the. I don't know, like exotic model esque, mm-hmm. like woman who's actually kind of trying to save him in some ways, like trying to help him a little bit. Right. He sees her like separated into two halves. Mm-hmm. But I remembered like seeing like a lot of stuff. And I don't know why. Like I thought that I guess maybe I just take. So anyway, so I had to, I, I think I was making lunch and I had like put something in the microwave. And so I paused the movie and I looked and there was. 27 minutes left and it was still five minutes away from happening so i think mm-hmm. it's like seriously like 20 minutes the last 20 minutes of the movie where mm-hmm. you see that stuff which yeah. is a shame because like you could have if cronenberg of all people had like directed this movie because this is a very cronenbergian like, it is idea yeah. you would have had like a lot of stuff happening early on where it was like you wouldn't like as the viewer you would have been unsure of like what you had seen like quick sure. cuts or right. like Small imperfections of things. Sure. And Yuzna just... I mean, he just doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And, and the commentary would have been much more thoughtful for <clears throat> Cronenberg. Right. I mean, so... Right. But, yeah. And there would have been a whole lot more, like, weird sex. Sure. Sure. And, yeah. But it's fine. You know? And, again, it, it really feels like... I mean, it's funny that he was an actor on Baywatch, because it kind of feels like something like that. Yeah. Like a late 80s early 90s like soap opera style mm-hmm. to it the way it's filmed is very i don't know it, it's it's very like film school grad mm-hmm. just like basic shots and trying to like like because they do a couple fisheye things in it a few times as well and it's not very effective and i don't know but it's still like it's still enjoyable i i still had fun watching it i just was thinking like man like this is not as good of a movie as i remember it being so, but for what's in the night in 1989, it's number three. Sorry, I, I started wondering if there's a Young and the Restless podcast while you were talking, and the thought process you can probably follow along that nobody else can. But um, because I was thinking about like how he was on Days of Our uh-huh. Lives and us talking about Days of Our Lives, Frankie and, Brady, man, right? And I started like thinking about Young and the Restless because that was the soap that right. I knew growing up, and then I thought. There's got to be a Young and the Restless podcast that are well, out there. you could do it. But that's what I was wondering is like now I need to. I was thinking like if they don't exist, they have to. They absolutely have to. Like there's a podcast for everything out there. Um, but if they don't exist, I need to find somebody to do a Young and the Restless podcast. With. No, what we should do is we would switch roles. 
Because I've never seen a single episode of Young and the Restless, I don't think. Oh. So I would have to go back and watch like old episodes of Young and the Restless somehow. And mm. then we'd have to discuss That's, that's it. interesting because I bet you nobody's doing old Young and the Restless. Right. You, you you would have to like pick from your childhood like. I don't know if you could go back and watch old episodes of it. It's got to be somewhere. I don't know about that. I mean, it's got like, what what what, what did I say when I looked up Days of Our Lives? Like 37,000 episodes or something, <laughs> something like that? Something like that, yeah. Because it had been since 65, you said, right? No, it wasn't 30. It's like 17,000 episodes. Something, but it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. 13,000, I think is what she said. Actually. But that was the difference. Is like I grew up in a house where my mom watched Another World and then Days of Our Lives right. and then whatever. Like, yeah. and I can't remember. I think Young and the Restless is 77 or 78. And I didn't start watching it until 90, 92, I believe. Um. Maybe 93. Because you had the but, same situation as me where you watched it in the summer with, like, your grandfather, right? Actually, no. Was, so, my grandmother, like, watched it, like, most of her life. Um, and I had to have surgery on my back, lower back. And I was home for a month after that surgery when I was in seventh grade. So, yeah, that would have been, like, 92 probably. And I... Um, like I couldn't lay on my back. So like I had to lay on my stomach and like, so I had had homework to do. So I would lay in the living room and I'd watch like prices right at 11 right. o'clock with her. Oh, and yeah. then, and then young, the restless would come on at 1230 and she would watch that in the bowl and the beautiful. And then, um, you know, then her, her games came on at like two o'clock usually on like USA. So it was like pressure luck and all that kind of stuff. But I started watching it then and after a month of watching it every day, I started, uh, I realized like, you know, like, oh man, I just record these and like watch them like, you know, like, and so I would save them up. Like I'd record every day on like a VHS and then at the end of the week on Fridays and Saturdays, I would like watch the week's Young and the Restless. Um, and then when my grandmother died, my grandfather, um was working nights when all of that was happening. So he started watching the young and the restless with her and I'm trying to think, I think I had tuned out a little bit by that point. Cause I'd been watching it for like five or six years. And then my grandfather, um, I started watching it with him just to spend time right. with him. And then I watched it for like another six years. And then I got back into it. Like, what was that? with Katie Davis like five years ago maybe yeah. like I started watching it again for a little bit because like she was thinking about watching it and then then I just read about it now like I kind of have I I know what's going on because I know the characters well, you, knew, you, you knew pretty well when we were talking about soap operas the other day we had oh, a really still... long we had a really long conversation on <laughs> Adam Newman Saturday yeah yes Saturday afternoon yeah. about like soap operas because I was going yeah. through like all Adam, the... Adam Newman is like my like after Victor's piece of shit like victor newman like uh, adam newman's like my favorite soap opera villain ever like because like right. when he was introduced he was pretending he was going blind by injecting some shit into his eyes to make people think he was going blind but he wasn't and it would wear off after like the tests and stuff like that then he would go around and fuck with people like and do shit that they he couldn't have possibly have done because he's blind um and it was like and he would just ruin people's lives, like while pretending he was being blind. It's like, man, I can't think of anything more like heelish um, than that. <clears throat> so, 
Yeah. So I, we'll have to talk offline about finding a way that I can watch Old Young and the Restlesses and then we can do. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, that would that would probably be fun because a supplemental some... podcast. <laughs> um. Okay. All right. You ready to move on to number two? Yeah. Let's move on. All right. Okay. So number two on your list is Parents, directed by Bob Balaban, starring Randy Quaid, Mary Beth Hurt, and Brian Medorsky. It has a 53% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 54% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you have it on the list? This is a satire of like the idea of the perfect like 1950s family. Um, Quaid and Hurt, is her last name right? Yeah, Mary, Mary Beth Hurt. Um, parents of this young boy, uh, he's a... She's like the, whatever, Leave it to Beaver-esque like, perfect mom. He's this kind of man's man um who eats red meat and who wants his son to be like him but doesn't really have any connection to his son um and his son also feels like uncomfortable around him um turns out the reason for that is because the parents are cannibals um and they're trying to get the son to become a cannibal as well um and then you find out like at the end of the movie that quaid's parents were also presumably cannibals and like passed it along to him and they're like because Quaid and Hurt die, and the son lives with the grandparents, and they're going to, like, get him to be the same. Um, so, as opposed to society, which is, like, a really, like, broad satire, or, you know, social commentary, like, this is a little more nuanced. Uh, mostly because, I guess, Bob Balaban's, like, probably more talented than Brian Usna. Sure. Um, this is also more comedy than society is. Like, this is... There's a lot of like, there's a lot of really grotesque things, and especially the way they film meat in this movie is just like really off-putting to make you want to eat like steak or ground beef or sure. sausage or whatever. But um, it's a pretty perfect like I don't know hyper technicolor look at like the 1950s, like with the way that the houses are set up and. The decor and the clothing and, like, the language. Um, but also, like, kind of showing, like, the underbelly of that. So, really maybe one of the first movies to kind of have, like, a almost, like, hypercritical look at what people consider to be, like, the golden age of America. Um, you know, like, the greatest generation baby boomer era mm -hmm. of America. Um, and also just about, like, you know, like, kids growing up like different from their parents and I don't know. Um, Randy Quaid is just Randy Quaid in it. I mean, it's a good performance by him sort of like over the top and, but also like subtly menacing at points too. Um, where you can tell that like, like he's really disappointed with his kid and probably wants to kill him, but is still like trying for the sake of his wife to like treat him well and like, you know, maybe like get him to come over. Right. <clears throat> Um, the young boy is friends with like a young girl. Um, and like the, those, those actors are good. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah all their acting is good. It's well acted. It's, it's well directed. Um, it's a movie that I was not, I think I saw this once in the mid nineties. Maybe I rented it, <clears throat> but I didn't really like have much of a memory of it until about three months ago before we had made like the 88, 89 lists. Um, I watched it and was like, oh man, I really like this movie. Um, I think it's fun. 
it's it's not very long mm-hmm. um the use of color in it is pretty amazing like it's it's really like colorful and garish in the right ways but also can be like really like creepy and um like menacing like he's Balaban does a good job of like lighting scenes in certain ways to kind of like make you feel different like visceral reactions to it mm-hmm. um this movie was a colossal failure in terms of like its box office like this movie made no money right. um which is probably another reason why like i only have vague memories of it as a kid um the the cover i definitely remember because the cover is randy quaid like sort of with like a knife and fork like over the kid kind of and it was yeah. um but yeah, like it's no, it's an effective box cover. I remember seeing it all the time, and I, I think I saw this like in '90. Like I, I saw, I was really young when I saw this because I think my parents watched it. And well, I wasn't around allowed to watch Roadhouse in 1990. They tried to like not make me like make sure I didn't watch that because I think there was tits in it. Right. I was allowed to watch this. I was gonna say there's no real like. I mean, there's some grotesque stuff with like blood and yeah. Um. Especially, like, again, like, the meat stuff is really kind of just, like, repulsive. But it's it's not a very, like, overtly scary or gory horror movie. It's more no. of, like... Again, it's more social commentary and parody than it is... Sure. Like, outright horror. No, but just as, just thinking about it, and, like, we were talking about last week with Bletso, like, when we talked about Halloween, the idea of, like, seeing violence at a young age and what you're desensitized to right. and what you're not. And then us just talking about the idea of consumable violence outside. Like right. it's really funny that like I'm, I can't watch a sex scene in a movie, but you can at, watch t- a, at 10 years old, but I can watch this. A dad cannibalize right. people and try and kill his son. Sure. Right, you know. yeah. I don't really have much to say about this movie aside from the fact that I just think it's really enjoyable. It's really well done. Um, Again, this isn't like a huge nostalgia movie for me because I only have vague memories of it. But it was something that watching it as an adult, I thought it stood up and was like still enjoyable to watch. And I think that's probably the best thing you can say about any like movie from the past. If you can watch it today, you know, like 30 plus year or 30 years past its release, like almost exactly. um, And still enjoy it. Like it's it's definitely worth a watch. Sure. I. I was really impressed watching this again for the first time in, yeah, like 30 years with Randy Quaid in this. Because I think that, like, the for the past 15 years at least, like, the perception of Randy Quaid is diminished over time. I think he's just become, because he doesn't really get a lot of roles. And he's either just like this, he's always like a buffoon right. in a lot of people's minds. So he's... National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Right. That's that's cousin how I cousin remember. Eddie. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I remember Randy Quaid. Sure, it's like that, or like the buffoon in Independence Day, or like you know the same kind of like you know character, like a Yahoo type character. Right. Um, but that's because of the way he looks too. He's got like that, he's got that slack jawed yokel look to him with like the buggy kind of eyes. Sure. He's tall, but he's not like menacing tall. He's mm-hmm. just kind of oafy tall. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I understand the typecasting. Absolutely. Like it's, I mean, he does that stuff really well, but he's a really talented actor. Yes. Like he's really good in this. And yes. I think he's good in the traditional 1950s father type way of like, you know, now son, like, you know, let me explain this to you. And then he's really good at being menacing. Right. It's, and 
it's a perfect combination of like Ward Cleaver and like mm-hmm. Henry Lee Lucas, basically. Sure, yeah. Like yeah. it's and he he does a good job of like moving seamlessly between those two like affectations. Right. Um I mean again, this is a time where the box office was not really supporting horror in terms of being like profitable. I mean, this, this movie lost money. Um, so probably one of the reasons why, when you talk about like why horror kind of diminishes because of things like this, you Mm -hmm. know, that it probably made its money back. I'm sure like many times over on video. Um, but yeah, like a, a commercial failure. Surprise. This is low. What'd you say for critics? 50%, 53%. 54 for audiences yeah that's weird to me yeah these are all these numbers are almost all exactly the same like for every single one of these movies um so ebert roger ebert reviews this and the main thrust of it he says because it speaks to a terror that lurks deep within our memories parents has the potential to be a great horror film but it never quite knows what it wants to do with its inspiration is it a satire a black comedy or just plain horror the right note is never found, and so the movie scenes coexist uneasily with one another. The look of the movie and the feel of the family split-level 50s modern house is all just right. But somehow there is no payoff. The movie needs an organizing vision, a clear line through to the end, a feeling that the director is sure of the effect he wants to achieve. Satire of this sort is delicate, and Balaban has the same problem in other movies that he's uh, completed. Um... The more a movie addresses itself to our secret terrors, the harder it is it has to work to be funny. Because at some level, of course, it is attempting to convince us to eat our pet rabbits. You know, that's not that that's not inaccurate. I mean yeah. I don't, I think it's fair. I don't know that I would be as harsh because I think that it does like I think many, it was a, no, no, it's two out of four star review, I think. I think there's many times where it does like strike a good balance between straight up horror and and parody, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's good black satire in that yeah. sense, but like, it's not a perfect movie. I mean, and it's not like a classic or anything. It's just yeah. an enjoyable movie mm-hmm. that you can sit down. I mean, two out of four, I'd probably give it like two and a half. Sure. You know, out of four. Agreed. So I'd like yeah. estimated a little higher than that. Right. Um, because I think that in like the interim, especially with the way that, you know, when you watch like older people talk about going back to like a better time in life. Like mm-hmm. I think it is a good reflection of why like sure. things were always like, you know, bad. It's just so you didn't right. know it yeah. as much. Right. And I mean this is a time period and Balaban's, I mean, obviously having fun with the notion, but I mean this is a few years before Brokaw like has his you know Greatest Generation. Uh, great yeah, he has yeah. his like revelation or walking on the beach one day that like the people they fought against for so long suddenly are the greatest generation. I mean the, that hadn't taken hold yet completely. So um you know, yeah, I mean this is this is one of the few that I think really looks at that like you said, the greatest generation yes. in a really pretty negative way. This late, like sure. it, obviously it happens in the 70s, like late 60s through the 70s, but you know. Uh, it's interesting too because society is so much more a product of its time because it really is about like that culture of like mass consumerism and sure. um, I don't know, like excess and you know, everyone. Society going, is still very modern. Like you could remake society now and it's the same movie. Right. Like I mean like... It, well, I mean, they've tried to remake it. 
not remake it specifically, but sure, like, there's but, been so many movies yeah. that are the same. But I mean, like the same, uh, even more so, the tensions are there more now than yeah. ever that society deals with. I mean, so, but with this, it's like, it is very unique to its time period for a very specific generation, right. I think. And I think it works as yeah. a satire. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. again, like, yeah. it's not a movie that 20 years from now I'm going to want to sit down and watch, but watching it, you know, fresh almost you know, a couple months ago was really entertaining. And yeah, I, was, I agree. I yeah, it. I enjoyed watching it again for the first time in a long time. All right, so let's get to the number one on the list because that's like the, this is this is a one movie list, like we said, pretty right. much. I, I liked Parents. Um, I enjoyed watching it a lot. I enjoyed yeah. watching all five of these movies again, but I love the number one movie. Hmm. Um, so this is your second cheat movie um, in the list now because right. 89 is such a bad year, but... um. Look, it's on the Wikipedia list for 89. That's not cheating. It's just so, selective. It was filmed in 1989. Selective selection. Yeah, it was filmed in 89. What's my other cheat? Ron or Cog- no, Cognition? No, no, In this list, I'm talking Pet Cemetery is a cheat, technically. Oh, did it come out in 92? No, 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 no. Oh, but because it's, it's not a B-movie. not a B-movie. Right. <laughs> so. Well, neither is this, really. Was this a theatrical? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. This is a major studio release, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, I can't imagine how bad this did at the box office. Okay, so number one on the list is The Exorcist 3. It's directed by William Peter Blatty. It stars George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, and Brad Dorff. has a 56% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 55% from audiences. That's crazy. You want to tell us a little bit about the sequel and what you like about it so much? So this is Blatty's like, true... Number one, this was not meant to be an exorcist movie. Mm-hmm. This is based off his novel Legion, um, which is not set in the same universe as The Exorcist. Um, this 20th Century Fox release is a major motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, made $40 million at the box office. Mm-hmm. It was actually like a pretty hmm. good yeah, commercial pretty success. Good. Yeah. Um, it takes up with... I just wouldn't have thought that exorcist name rang out still in 1989 but yeah i mean i like for a long time the exorcist i mean even to this day one of the things that kind of stains the original exorcist is that whole the scariest movie ever made right kind of tag to it and like it's not but right i mean back then because it was something like for for my parents like one of their first dates was going to see the exorcist mm-hmm. and so my mom was always like like, I could rent anything, but I was never allowed to rent The Exorcist right. because she was so terrified of it. Yeah. My mom's the same way with The Exorcist. Um, so, George C. Scott is um, Detective Kinderman. Um, he was best friends with... Uh, fuck, what is Father... Not Merrick, the other one. The priest that gets thrown down the stairs at the end of The Exorcist. Um, they were best friends and like, he basically died in his arms. Um, he's become, he's really good friends with another priest and he's kind of like a world weary, um, fatalistic detective who still tries to do the right thing, but is consistently like just sort of like broken by the terrible things he sees around him. Um, the movie opens in a very like weird dreamlike pastiche of like, around the murder of like a young black kid that was um, part of like the rec league that the police hosted. Um, The kid was murdered in the style of 
this serial killer called the Gemini killer that has been dead for 10 years at this point. Um, including like certain things that were done, like fetishistic things done to the body that only the police knew about because they were never released to the public. Which is funny because you think about that today, like we know like the minutia of what serial killers did. And to think that at a time, like even in like the fiction, this fictional world, like there could have been something that they never like revealed to the public about, like mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. Um, Kinderman is investigating the murders. Um, well, there's the, the first murder and then there's, a subsequent murder of a priest um, in a confessional and everything. And also his friend gets killed as well. Um, Karis, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Is his name? Karis, yeah. Um, And it all leads back to like all the physical evidence points to these um, geriatric, uh, almost like comatose patients of this hospital. Um, Then there's this patient that's stuck in a room that when Kinderman like goes to him, it's his, you know, what, what is, what is the, I gotta, I gotta look up his name. Damien Karras is the priest and father, father Dyer is the other, the older priest that Kinderman is friends with. Um, so the Gemini killer is actually like a demon who's reanimated Karras and possessed him. Um, little weirdly disorienting that there's scenes where Karis is portrayed by um uh Jason Miller who played him in the original movie mm-hmm. but also the Gemini killer is played by Brad Dorif um there's a lot of like you know back and forth there Kinderman's still trying to figure out like why they can't catch this killer and then realizes towards the end of the movie that it's because he can possess the weak minds of these comatose patients um, really great scene where Kinderman has to rush home to save his family because mm-hmm. the Gemini has infected this woman from the hospital who goes to like kill, like murder his daughter. Um, and in the end there's this, it it's borderline over the top yeah, and sometimes kind of goofy, but it also manages to like pull back a little bit from being like completely ridiculous scene. With the exorcism um, that ends with Kinderman just like shooting Karis to death because Karis is able to like take control of his body back from the demon. Mm-hmm. Um, none of which was in the original like filming of this movie. Like a lot right. of that stuff is very much post production because Fox said, "Well, you got to yeah, like the studio tie interfered, in. right?" Yeah. Um, one of only a couple movies that Blatty ever directed. Uh, there's this one and a movie from the late seventies. I can't remember what it's called now. I literally just watched it a week ago and actually kind of enjoyed it. Um, so, number one, this movie is one of the most well-written, well-acted horror movies like I've ever seen. Like I love everything about the dialogue. Um, the way that Scott delivers his dialogue is amazing. Um, it's very... It's very modern in the way that the dialogue is written. Like, it almost feels like you're watching something like, um, I mean, not, this is no real comparison, but like something like the Gilmore Girls, Mm. where like the dialogue is so finely crafted and perfect. And 
you actually feel like these people are friends. Right. Or like that they work together or they know yeah. each other. I mean, Kinderman is... Most of the time in this era, you would portray a cop as just like... You look at something like um, Night of the Creeps, for instance, right? Right. Um, the cops are these kind of dumb, like, shoot first, ask questions later, like, bumbling idiots that sort of stumble upon this stuff. And Kinderman is a well-reasoned, educated, thoughtful man who just has, like, this hole in him that comes from seeing, like, all these terrible things happen. Right. Um, one of the more effective scenes in the movie is, so they have a tradition to go see It's a Wonderful Life every year, um, him and Father Dyer. And they're in a... Um, like a diner after the movie and they're talking and Dyer's trying to be positive and bring Kinderman's spirits up. And Kinderman talks about like the head being like sawn off the body and like all these terrible things. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it's so effective. One of my other favorite scenes too, is when Kinderman is like, kind of like given a dressing down to a, like a detective early in the movie and just like, <laughs> like, like references Macbeth and mm-hmm. Macbeth is about like the death of the spirit or like it's just I don't know it's it's fantastic like Vladdy is a I, I wish he would have done more because he's really excellent in this film at like melding his own words with like scene and um some of the some really iconic scenes in this movie and like probably the one that people think of the most is there's a I guess midway through, a little more than midway, um, there's an incredibly long shot of just the hallway in the hospital. And, like, it, the camera moves a little bit and it cuts, like, once. But it mostly is just a focus down this long hallway and you're just waiting for something to happen. And this nurse gets up to check out, like, a noise in a room and then leaves. And this, like, nun-looking thing with, like, huge um, embalming shears just like fast steps out behind her and like you never see the cut you never see the impact Mm -hmm. but just like holding the shears at like face height and like fast walking and then it like cuts away and it's just it's it's really well done really um it's it's the best sequence in the entire movie from a directorial standpoint right it's really that sequence like it's one of the best sequences it's one of my favorite sequences in in horror horror movies movies in general like it's absolutely for in, in terms of building tension and not giving you a reason to really be afraid, except for the fact that you know that something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then baiting your expectations and then not letting you have the release of, like, seeing it yeah. is um is really, it's it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. There's other really good stuff, too. Like, there's um the scene where Kinderman's in, like, the convalescent ward with, like, the comatose patients. And you kind of feel like, woman. A, yeah, first person yeah. from inside a closet. Mm-hmm. And then an old woman from earlier in the film is like crawling on, like spider crawling on the yeah, ceiling, uh-huh. like fast behind him, and yep. that's um, that's really well done. Yep, I and agree. creepy. Yep. Um, that, again, there's like so many little things of dialogue. Like early in the movie, when Kinderman and Dwyer meet each other, and Dwyer asks how he's doing, Kinderman tells the story about how his mother-in-law is visiting. Yeah. And he loves his mother-in-law, but she brought a carp. She can make a carp for dinner. But she wanted a fresh carp, and the carp is in his bathtub. And every time he goes, he's like, you're standing close to me. Can you smell it? I haven't bathed in days. Because every time I go in there, I just see that carp swimming in my bathtub. Uh, And it's a delicious fish. I love the carp, but I just want to shoot. Like, it's 
Yeah. It's it's amazing. Like it's really yeah. good dialogue. It it is. I mean and, and it Right. And it's and it's really expertly written because it's like he's trying to deflect what's really going on with him by complaining about his mother-in-law in the carp. It's like he's it's, it's obvious that like, you know, it's like he's it's what we all do. It's like we make jokes about things that are not that big of a deal in order to not talk about the things that are right. really bothering us. And I thought it was brilliant, like that like little speech that he gives. Um, and you can see the look on, uh, say, Dyer. Dyer Father, Dyer. Father Dyer's face. Like You can see that it's like he's he thinks it's funny, all that kind of stuff. But you can also see that like he knows what his friend's doing. And it just felt, that's why, again, I, I think it feels, that friendship is one of the more natural-feeling friendships, I think, um, in a lot of movies um, that I've seen. It actually feels like those two people know each other really well and care right. about each other. So, but yeah, I mean, it's... I'm surprised that, like... I mean, I guess the critic reviews are probably more contemporaneous. and They are. That's not super surprising that, like, a horror film would be like that, but... I mean... So it's it's weird because this is a movie that was kind of like a hidden gem for a long time, I think maybe is a good way to put it, um, where you would not meet a lot of people. Like most people would think about The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which is a fucking mess. Yeah. Like it, there's a couple good things about it, but it's like James Earl Jones wearing like a grasshopper costume or whatever the fuck it is. Like it's just, it's, it, it's a bad movie. It's not a good movie. Um... And so most people would never even watch The Exorcist 3 because the impression is that, like, you watch the first one, it's all you need to see. Um, so I didn't know a whole lot of people that had seen this movie for a long time. And I I guess I watched this... I think I rented all three of them one weekend when I was, like, 16 and able to go rent my own movies, finally. Um, and was completely amazed by this movie. Like, I had no expectations. I never heard anything about it and was, like... So impressed. And I've, I've probably watched this movie, like, without exaggeration, like, 12 or 13 times mm. in my life. Um, it's a movie that I tend to watch every year or so, mm. roughly. Like, every, maybe every couple of years, like, around Halloween, just because I like it so much. Sure. Um, so, uh, Red Letter Media um, did a review of this movie yeah. uh, recently for their Halloween series. And... A lot of the things they said, like, I was happy to hear because it's the way that I feel about it. And, like, a lot of times you don't expect, like, especially with horror movies, like, everyone says they love horror movies, but not a lot of people, like, really, like, like, people say they love horror movies. You'll ask them, what's your favorite horror movie? And they're like, oh, it's Saw. And it's like, well, no. Like, right. that's a really bad, like, no offense. That's a really yeah. bad opinion. Yeah. So it's it's always good to find people, you know, that, like, appreciate really good mm -hmm. horror movies, so... Yeah. I think it's a movie I was, more I was, I was, I was a little upset that they that they beat us to the punch. Um, I'll be yeah. honest. They've done that a couple times now with some movies where right. they beat us to the punch on like. Well, we beat them on Bone Tomahawk. So did did they do one on Bone Tomahawk? Yeah, like did, literally two days after we did. The oh, podcast really? Where nice. We talked yeah. about like um, what list was Bone Tomahawk on? Uh, was that Modern Westerns? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was Modern Westerns? Yeah, I think so. Right. Well, we beat them. Something Definitely. like that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I think remember. it was Western. Yeah, it was Westerns. Um Yeah, it was. But yeah, they, they, they reviewed it about a month ago. Yeah. So I was happy to see we beat them on that. Right. Um not that there's any competition because obviously like they're 
a successful YouTube channel with like absolutely hundreds and they're, of and they're, and they're good guys. I, I like those right. Guys. I like them a lot. I, I refuse. I refuse to watch Exorcist three though because they beat us to the punch. Plus, I didn't want whatever their opinions were to influence me in watching this again because this I is mean, only the second time I've watched it. And you made me watch it back in like mid two thousands, oh four, oh five, like yeah. or whatever. And um, I think it was that time when I was watching a lot of horror movies, and you had me watch it, and I really liked it a lot back then. I probably liked it just a tiny bit less this time, but not by much. Like we're talking inches, you know. I mean, just I, I didn't the the luster of watching it the first time was lost a little in the second viewing. But man, there's some really great stuff in this movie, and like some of the creepier scenes are some of the best scenes I've seen in horror movies for being, like you said, for just for being creepy. Like, yeah, it's interesting you say that because, like, again, I've seen this movie. Um, I appreciated the relationship much more this time than I did the first time. I think. I, I always find this to be something where, um. Like, I find things about this movie every time I watch it that maybe I'd forgotten or uh-huh. maybe not necessarily noticed. Like, yeah. I was when I was watching it this last time, because I actually watched it today. This was the last one I had to watch. Cause I, I didn't feel like I had to watch it again, but then, like, I had time, and I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to watch it. Uh-huh. Um, there's a scene where Dyer is talking to, like, a student of his in the beginning, and... It's just like the interplay between them where there's this nothing character that never appears again in the movie and is like irrelevant. So it really is just a character building moment, but mm-hmm. it's so <clears throat> naturalistic and like good and just gives you this idea that this dire guy is just this honestly like just good mm-hmm. Jesuit teacher that cares about like doing his job well and cares about his students. And it's like most horror movies don't care to give you that kind of stuff. Like you can have sure. people. It's one of the weird things about Pumpkinhead that actually makes Pumpkinhead like a good movie. Right. Is the fact that it cares enough to like build an actual relationship between Lance Henderson and his son. Right. So that when something happens to his son, it's meaningful and like impactful to you as a viewer. Sure. And I think that this whole movie is basically built around the premise that it wants he wants to make you feel like these are real like living and exorcist does that as well and like one of the it modern does. criticisms yeah. of exorcist from people that have never seen it and who come in with the you know under the pretense that it's going to be like super scary is that nothing happens in the exorcist for a really long time sure i mean it's like very slow slow burn build mm-hmm. but you know blatty is just he does a really great job with like building yeah building those characters and building that world and yeah. You know, building the backstory of, like, the Gemini killer. And that's the other thing, too, is Dorif in this movie is fucking amazing. Like, for as little as he's really in it. I mean, he's probably only in, like, 15 total minutes of the movie. Sure. The way that he delivers his dialogue, he's just probably typecasts himself because he always plays, like, the creepy weirdo. Right. Maybe that's just because he looks like a creepy weirdo. No, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think he's gotten in recent years a few more different types of roles just because he's older now. But um, yeah, I mean, like the character that he plays here is a little bit more uh, rage rageful. But like that damn episode that he's in of the X Files, uh, where he plays the serial killer that Mulder locked up, right. but he um is claiming he's psychic now and like ends up like helping Scully deal with her father's death. Um, 
that he's really is that good. beyond the sea? Yes, beyond the sea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that shit's really good. And, and you just um, made me dig so far down into my goddamn repressed memories of like that show that I never want to yeah. think about. Yeah. Do you remember what? Uh, do you remember who played her father? Yeah, it's um the dude from yeah Twin Peaks. Yeah. Do you remember what he called her? I'm really making you reach now, like what the dad called Dana. I don't. Starbuck, I think. I think, I think that's, that's right. right. Yeah. God. Um, because I just remember like Brad Dorf like saying that saying her name like um uh, Brad Dorf's really good in that episode though. Um yes. he he played he does that kind of creepy but vulnerable still. And this he's not really doing vulnerable at all, but it's like well, he's no, still he's a demon. Right, but he's still really good in this. Um yeah. and then he's fantastic in Deadwood. Like it's one so of the there's best characters. There's a director's cut of this that I've never seen. Does it have this? This is the ending is the thing that got me this time. Like, that's why I said I liked it a little less is like, there's so much of that final sequence that they forced onto him. That's overdone at times. And mostly in the way that it's filmed. And yes. Not necessarily in what's actually not, happening. Agreed. Because agreed. honestly, the whole idea of like. And even the ideas behind what they're doing isn't bad. It's just the way that they actually execute it. It's Kinderman's faith in his friend right. that saves him and not the faith in God, which is a really interesting like reexamination of mm-hmm. the whole like universe of the exorcist and like what an exorcism is. <clears throat> um, and just the fact that like, it's not the power of Christ compels you, you know, mm-hmm. it's six bullets, you know, once his friend is able to like, so not even like, devaluing the idea that like demons exist but just that you know right it's kinderman himself that is like able to kinderman's friendship with a man that he loved because he says it at one point like i loved him dearly right you know that that helped save him so i i i should watch the director's cut sometime it's really weird that i've never yeah like seen it that is strange honestly i mean my i've i own this movie on vhs um and then i bought it on dvd Again, probably the 2004, mm-hmm. you said. So that's probably right. And it was one of those, like, Snapcase, like, cardboard DVDs. And I still have it. I mean, it's, like, beat up and old. But um, it's been on, I think it's on Prime now, I guess, is where I watched it this morning. Um, So I've watched it. I don't know. And I've never seen the director's cut, so I should look for that. It's on Prime it. now? It was on Prime this, when I watched it today. Would you have to buy it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. This shit changes way too quick. Because seriously, things change like week to so week. So you know what's like, weird? This is like kind of a callback to our a couple episodes ago. You watch Prime through your Fire Stick, right? No. You watch it through your PlayStation? No. I watch it through the Smart TV app. Okay, so I, I watch Prime sometimes through my Fire Stick. Right. And sometimes through my PlayStation, depending on whatever mm-hmm. I just have on at the time. <clears throat> I'm telling you, I get more results... On the PS4. Because, like, when we did that thing where we went through... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went back afterwards and went through Netflix and Prime mm-hmm. on my PS4. So many more options than we than we had yeah. when we talked about it. Like, there was things I was like, right. Like, I wanted to mention that. Right. But we didn't see it. So, for whatever reason, like, when you look at it that way, it's limiting what you see. And I don't know why. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing is, like, I when we do this stuff, like, 
I, I look it up through Google first. Google's, like I said, like 90% accurate most of the time for the major streaming services. Um, and even so stuff like stars and stuff like that. So, and then I'll check out Decider if like, if it looks like it's something I have to right. buy, I'll look at Decider because sometimes Decider will show things that aren't like that Google doesn't show occasionally, usually not. But then I always go to the services I do have and I search the movie just to double check because there's times where it's like, it's a special edition or something like that is on Prime or Netflix, but the original's not for some reason. Like I've run across those kind of things. So I always do go and like search these things, but it's probably that the exorcist just came up like this past week. So here's this interesting thing. I just searched for exorcist three. Mm-hmm. My first, I watched it on Tubi is where I watched it. My first return result is from prime right. directly below that. Mm-hmm. There's, one that I have to pay for. It oh. shows up as a, how do I watch this? And it's the exact same cut, same length, same yeah. right. cover. So it's not even like the director's cut or anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I watched it on Tubi. I actually didn't have to pay for it. I just remembered this. Yeah, um, it's it's free on Tubi right now. Um, And then Parents, if anybody wants to check that out, is also on Prime right now and Tubi, I believe. Um, it's on both. Let me see if the director's cut is available anywhere. It doesn't come up. No. Okay, so yeah, really good movie. I definitely, like I said, like I, definitely the best movie on this list. Um, oh, yeah. By far. So, I wanted to talk now about these 10 months, and I'm going to be, I'm going to tell you, I... We're at 51 episodes right now. Right. We just did 50. And I think I'm prouder that we got through all 10 years of this thing (laughs) than I am of like the 50 episode mark. And partially it's because early going, first couple months we did this, I was like, oh my God, what the fuck did I get into? Because I the first couple years were rough on me because it was so much of like the... Friday the 13th stuff, and there's just so much that, like, so many movies on those lists that, like, I just, that slasher shit I've realized now that I'm older, I can't stand any of that stuff. Um, But, you know, I mean, then by the time we got to the mid, you know, early to mid, like, 84 or so, it started, like, evening out a lot, and there was a lot of really good stuff um, on these lists um, until this week. Uh, But... And these aren't bad. It's just they're just not great. Like a lot of them. Um, So, yeah. So, I'm really proud that we actually got through this um, list overall. Like, and have done this. But I want to start, like, wrapping this up now. And the first thing I wanted to do is talk about what your top five movies for the entire decade are. So, I I did this today. Mm -hmm. Um, It was kind of hard to narrow down to a top five because yeah, sure. there's stuff like um, Inferno and uh, Motel Hell and Slumber Party Massacre and uh, Tenabre um, that I really like a lot. Uh-huh. Um, but that I like were marginal. Not not marginal, but I just when I had to narrow down to a top five. Go five to one for me. I don't have it in an order. Oh, you don't have it no, in any order? I, I don't know if I can order it. Oh, okay. Uh, 
All right, I can order it just okay. really quick in my head. So, um, Phenomena, number five, mm-hmm. which you absolutely hated, yep. but one of my favorite Argento uh-huh. movies. Um, seriously, like a top 20 horror movie of all right. time for okay. me. Um, Return of the Living Dead is number four, because uh-huh. um, I love that movie so much. Right. Um, Evil Dead, number three. Uh-huh. Um, this Exorcist 3 is number two. Uh-huh. And then Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, which... <clears throat> Vies with maybe like five other movies yeah. to me is like the greatest like horror movie ever made. Okay, so I I did the same thing after having watched all these now, and if I'm including the cheat of Exorcist three, my list would be Hellraiser mm. number five, Exorcist three at four, Reanimator at three. Evil Dead at two and Henry at number one. So Hellraiser and Reanimator, um, were like seven eight for me mm-hmm. in that range. And then if I took out the cheat, Hellraiser moves up. Pin becomes number five. Yeah, Pin is really good too. I forgot. Pin is about Pin. Pin, Pin is like the thing that like I that I have never watched on any of these lists that I watched and I think is a fantastic fucking movie. It's a really good movie. Like it's like it's it's like the one thing I've watched out of these that I hadn't seen before that I was like this is I love this. Yeah, I mean, so Nightmare on Elm Street didn't count, and that would be that would probably push Phenomena off of there mm-hmm. the first one just because I that that's another difficult thing too. But like I I love yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, it it falls. It, I thought about it and it falls right outside of this for me. Yeah, I, to me, it's because of its importance, I think, to horror in general and just the fact that more so than, I think, Friday the 13th and Halloween, like Nightmare on Elm Street is really responsible for the commercialization of horror movies and like sure. just that spread of horror is like an acceptable, I mean, because you think about it, like they made cartoons and video games about horror movies in the 80s and like... Mm-hmm. I mean, you never would have really seen that without Nightmare on Elm Street, without right. Freddy being like, for being like absolutely a villain, like never yeah. even like an anti-hero. But being charming. Right. Being like a an apt spokesman sort sure. of for like horror. Right. Where you don't have to have the weird like yeah. psychosexual connotations of Pinhead mm-hmm. or like the fact that Leatherface and Jason and Michael Myers are all like voiceless mm-hmm. predators, but Freddy's this verbose charming witty like you know monster that you can kind of i mean they made friggin fuck what was that series called movie fx i think was the name of it it was um a 12 inch doll series like action figure series modeled on like the gi joe model yep um that was supposed to come out with like different costumes where you could dress up your guys different people and they came out with a freddy one and i don't think any other one ever came out mm. Um, but lunch boxes and, you know, you had the friggin' Toxic Crusader got a television show. Like, you know, I mean, it's just. Right. And maybe that's like, maybe that's also part of the death knell of horror, too, is that like when it became so commercial, like it wasn't, you know, I read this great book when I was in high school, maybe about um 
Grindhouse cinema before it was really called Grindhouse. Um, it was really just about like violence in films and the portrayal of violence in films. And they talk about like the rise of horror in that book, like kind of being attributed to the fact that it was a it was a thing that you did by yourself. Like you went to these dark, like concrete bunkers almost, and watched these like horrific things in like a sticky floored theater. And it kind of almost like added to the effect. And like I, I, I've talked about this a number of times, especially during like this series, where a lot of like my love of horror comes from the fact that it was something you had to find. Like it was almost like like a horror movie plot in and of itself where like, you know, you're obsessively like combing through like video stores and I mean I subscribe to like video search of Miami catalogs. Like I paid like ten dollars a year to have like their catalog mm-hmm. sent to me and would go to like trade shows and conventions and just like buy like these skeevy, you know, photocopied cover, like, you know, fourth generation bootlegs of shit. Right. And I don't know, like it's, it's something where when, when it was everywhere, you know, so when you could turn on HBO on Friday night and HBO had just like horror movies on, like it wasn't mysterious and it wasn't hidden and it wasn't like this thing that was your own and then beyond that like now the internet kind of like with especially with creepypastas and stuff has sort of like reinvigorated that even though it's a shared experience it still is now kind of like a it's a thing that has like some weird like pseudo mysticism to it like when you find Mm -hmm. like a really good horror movie and you're watching them in your house like dialing them up whenever you want and watching them by yourself. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, like I just, but those five movies I think are all fantastic. I know that you hate phenomena, but yeah, (laughs) you'll never sell me on that movie. I will always love that movie. Uh, yeah, I, I, the thing that I found interesting throughout doing this is like things that I've learned like about myself primarily like about my thoughts on things is I didn't realize until we started this how much I really generally dislike slasher movies yeah um like I really like Halloween like watching last week was good and it's like Bledsoe saying like the second he liked the first half better than the second half it's like I still like the second half of Halloween because I think as a slasher it's more methodical and Michael Myers is more interesting than most of the other slasher villains. And I sort of said this last week. Halloween is not a slasher movie to me. Halloween is a stalker movie. Okay. Because you never really see, aside from when he chokes out the girl with the yeah. um, the telephone cord, mm-hmm. you don't see him kill anybody. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess you see him like, you see the aftermath choke, of... You see him choke the girl in the car, too. Yeah, I mean, you see him even if you don't see the insertion. It's like you see him stab the guy against but the that's, door. And so the- that's... See, I think that's why you hate horror movies. Because it became less about the anticipation of the kill and the fear of, like, someone's imminent death. Yeah. And more... Like, Friday the 13th series, after the second movie, turns into just what creative ways can we use to kill a kid this time and sure. still show her your show show them her boobs right yeah. and that's it like it's basically just yeah. like jason's a plot device like yeah. it's not it a antagonist right. he's yeah. just 
a, like almost like Deus Ex Machina, like means to an end to get sure. from one scene to another yeah. with very little connective tissue between that. Yeah. And because those movies made so much money, that's what people gravitated towards. Right. And it's like, it's why I liked Halloween is like some of the things that I was saying last week, whether people could hear me or not because of my audio, because um, we don't have that third mic. But I mean, is is the idea, it's like they're, they're set, they're establishing what I want out of a horror movie is somebody for a movie to build tension and make me care about somebody that I feel sense of tension of whether they're going to be okay or not. And if it is like a slasher or like stalker movie or whatever, it's like, that's what I want. And, and to do that, it's like, you need work up front where you establish like a clear, like protagonist that you care about, sure. which the movie does. It establishes, you know, uh, that the the idea that the slasher slash stalker villain is a threat and a credible threat and that stuff that Donald Pleasance's character does um you know like certainly is all about right. that and the first half of the movie is about making sure that you want to see her survive because she's likable and making sure that Michael Myers is comes off as this like insane supernatural right. villain and that's done through the Loomis character, and uh, so yeah, I like that stuff. And then, and then the fact that it's like stalker as opposed to slasher, as you say, yeah, it's much more methodical in the way that it like builds towards the kills and stuff like that, and it, it creates tension. And it's slow, and so yeah, I like that kind of stuff. I all, it's the same reason why I like something like Texas Chainsaw, right? Is because it might be more chaotic at at a couple moments and stuff like that, but it's still slowly building towards those things, right? The sh all my favorite movies it's like you know horror movies like the shining you think how long the shining takes to like build towards things and they're quick burst of violence it's how violence really should be like sure. you know it's just the slow build until an axe goes through a chest you know and then it's over you know um but yeah, so I, like, really learned a lot about myself, like, in terms of what I really like about horror, I think, and what I don't like about horror. Um, I was surprised, like, thinking about, like, all those movies, like, and, and it wasn't really much of a question for me that Henry is, like, my number one movie out of all right. those. Well, Henry's just, like... Well, I think Henry's probably, uh, when I had to think about it more, it's, like, I think Henry's probably in my top three horror movies of all time. Because I was never going to watch this movie again. Right. Like, I had never planned on it because it disturbed me so much it's, the first time I watched upsetting. it. It disturbed me less, but it still disturbed me, like, watching it this time. Um, but again, I'm desensitized. It's this always thing. still it's, it's incredibly uncomfortable for yeah. me to watch. Right. It's it's uncomfortable to watch, yes. Yeah, I, I think Henry's top five for me. Yeah. Uh, that's It's 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 the shiny Texas Chainsaw and, and, and Henry are probably my top three. Yeah. I mean, Texas Chainsaw is, like, far and away my favorite horror yeah. movie of all time. Third... I was still surprised, even after all these months, how well Evil Dead held up. Right. Evil Dead, like from a from a filmmaking standpoint, holds up better than half the damn, uh, more than half of the movies that come out right now in 2019. Agreed. Like, it's, it's amazing what he was able to do with that budget, just through ingenuity and just balls right. like i mean um there's some other point that i have but i can't remember right now so but yeah like i overall i really enjoyed doing this um 
like I know like a couple months ago, even when there was good movies on the list, like I, I, I know like I, I felt a little bit, I think you felt it worse than me is like, I think it did get exhausting after a while of doing the same topic a different year, month after month. Um, but, um, no, I, I, I enjoyed it overall. I'm glad to like have heard you talk about like a, a genre that in depth. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I watch, watch a lot of horror movies that we'll never talk about. Like I just, sure. I, I keep a list on my phone called, um, movies I watch not on lists. Um, mm -hmm. and I just like, while you were talking, I just went through and like quickly like counted them as, as well as I could. And I have 72 movies. Uh huh. On that, and that was whenever we did the podcast where top five movies that were that aren't on a list. So mm -hmm. that's things I've watched. So that many. Oh movies. yeah, I forgot. We we should do that again at some point. Yeah, whatever month that was, it was in the summer sometime. So I mean, and you're right though. Like there's stuff. So uh, one of the more underrated, and one of the ones that I kind of would almost probably push phenomena off for me is um I, I think Slumber Party Massacre is a really underrated horror movie. Just because of what you said, like, I think it builds like a good sense of like her and then the other girl and like her sister is like these credible people that just because they do drugs and have sex, don't make them bad. It's better than some of them. I, I, I love that movie. I like the commentary of that movie too. Anyway, but yeah, it's the just, commentary, yeah, the com I like the commentary. I mean, I watched a movie a couple weeks ago called Monster Party that had a really cool premise and just terrible execution like it's yeah. it's like it's amazing that someone as young as Raimi like understood everything that makes a movie great and was able to distill it into like 90 minutes of just insanity mm -hmm. and still make you care about the main character sure and watching stuff that's like and this is some probably shutter exclusive i can't remember but like direct to video basically thing that most people are probably never going to watch, but it's just weird that it's just so shitty, you know, that <laughs> like, I don't know, like you have all this like history of like movies you could go draw upon to make something good and you just don't. So I, don't I know, know we're talking exclusively about B movies with this list, but, and, and there's a lot of like mainstream stuff that we didn't talk about that could have sure made the list like, what, like Gremlins and um, Gremlins, yeah, Lost Boys probably. Right, Lost Boys would have made a list, right? And it's like, but um, is this? And I'm not talking favorite now. Is this the best decade of horror? Do you think? Nah. Is that the '70s for you? I mean, I would say. The seventies, like how do you rank it? Like, seventies are number one to me, uh -huh. um, by a pretty considerable margin. Uh, followed by this past decade, hmm. and the sixties, maybe. Only because I love like a lot of the early like Hammer, hmm. and like um. There's, like, a lot of, like, Italian and Japanese, like, horror movies during that time mm. that are really good. Um, and then the 80s. Mm. 80s is probably, like, fourth on my list. A 80s and 60s are probably the same, I guess. I don't know. 
Um, and I also love, like, and you have no affection for this, but, like, I love the universal era of horror movies, like the black and white. Like monster type movies and yeah. stuff like that? Oh, no, I have no interest in any of that. Like, that's some of my favorite shit, is that, yeah. like, classic black and white horror movies. And I really love, like, honestly, in the 20s and 30s, there's a lot of silent films and, like, early mm-hmm. talkies of horror movies that are just really um, art deco, almost. Uh, like you think about stuff like, um, the cabinet, cabinet of Dr. Cal cabinet of Dr. Caligari, mm-hmm. um, the hands of Orlock, um, yeah. vampire, uh, the phantom carriage, uh, the man who laughed. I mean, there's like ton of stuff from like that era where pre pre code era horror movies that were just like unsettling. And the fact that like you're reading the dialogue it's like almost like disjointed it's like watching the closer video or something you know where right. it's like the title cards and like the the imagery and stuff is just it's it's pretty amazing um i don't think there's any decade of horror that i don't like hmm. like even the 90s even though it's a lot of like garbage what about the 2000s yeah, there's still some good stuff in the 2000s yeah. um is the 2000s better than the 90s hmm or is it pretty much kind of like roughly the same? That's hard. There's a lot of stuff in the 2000s that I've purposefully never seen. Mm. Uh, just because... But you know, no, but that's not even true. Because the 2000s is like... The boom of like... Um, Korean horror and Thai. Right. Um, there's a lot of really good like Eastern European horror in the 2000s. Um, I mean in America like... Not that much, but like foreign horror in the two. I mean, two actually from like 2000, 2010 or 2009, like per capita, you probably have better horror than like even in the 1980s, honestly. So many things from that era and even in the 90s, like the 90s had so much great stuff coming out of like Japan. I mean, right. that's the ring sure. and the grudge yeah. and mm-hmm. Urjuan and dark, dark water might be in the 90s. Maybe it's early 2000. I think it's 99. Um, Like all that stuff is fantastic. So, and there's also like a lot of stuff that we'll never talk about and that I've seen and like I've probably forgotten. Like there's like Middle Eastern horror that's pretty good and like a lot of stuff from Europe, especially from like um, the Nordic countries like Finland and like we've never even talked about fucking, um, and I know it's a television Mm -hmm. series, but The Kingdom the Lars von Trier thing, which right. is one of my favorite horror serials right. ever. So there's just, there, there's a lot of stuff that because it wasn't like, you know, because you have to like work and like dig to find it. Like it's not as immediately apparent, but you no, know, no, the seventies though definitely is my favorite decade of horror, yeah. like by a pretty wide margin. And this, this decade has really done a good job of like building itself up. Like the more stuff I see, I mean, I've seen, easily like 10 movies in the past couple of years that are on my top like 50 horror movies of all time yeah that's you know? really interesting and i think there's a lot of like the best horror directors working are working like currently like ever like the most talented directors yeah i mean we're not going to do it next year but it almost makes me wonder like if we're if we have the energy for it like we keep doing this another year after that of doing, I, I almost want to know the 2010 to 2019 list. Yeah. 
um, of our. We, I'd I we we could do it in like three or chunks. Just do three episodes. Like I'd be right. okay with that. Yeah. But I don't um, know if I I don't I don't think I have the energy to, to do, do this right. anytime again soon because yeah. this. I love watching horror movies, and I enjoyed watching. I think pretty much every single thing on this list yeah. that I rewatched, which was probably like eighty percent of it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But man, it's like. So number one, and not, not not to drag this out too much longer, yeah. whenever I'm watching something that I don't love, I just kind of like, I feel like I'm wasting time that I could be watching something else, right. like something new or sure. something that I really want to see. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there watching something like, I don't know, fucking like Pieces or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Pieces is a funny movie and it's fun. Yeah. But I didn't want to sit there and watch Pieces again. And I'm like just wishing that I was watching something else. So it's almost like a knife to my heart kind of like sometimes. Right. Sure. I get you. Um, last question I have for you is uh, what do you think the legacy is of the 1980s in terms of like what what do you think major things are still prevalent, prevalent today that were like started? Um, the use of comedy in horror to relieve tension, um, the desire to build franchises, I think is probably like the biggest legacy of the eighties is the idea that like you can have horror icons that are people that are continuously like used in movies and like marketing Mm -hmm. campaigns and whatnot. Um, the idea that like a horror movie doesn't have to be good or well done to be profitable mm. like i mean there was there's always been cheapy yeah. you know like drive-in grade <clears throat> horror movies but the 80s like when you go back and look through those lists like it is an explosion probably as much as like the 50s because the 50s has a ton of like terrible i like the 50s though too but there there's a ton of terrible shit in the 50s that's enjoyable to watch. Like, it's fun. Like, this that's like Roger Corman's, like, nascent decade. And, sure. Um, Herschel Gordon Lewis in the 50s and 60s. And Russ Meyer, who was more like porno, like softcore porn, but also had, like, horror elements to it. And William Castle. Like, there's all kinds of people that were just, like, churning out movies during those decades. Um, but it really was, like, I can shoot a movie for $70,000 and sell it to you know, 2000 video stores and make my money back like tenfold for like no real effort. And there's so many movies you see, like hundreds of movies that like I've seen that we would never talk about on a list like this that are just absolute garbage, Mm -hmm. but come from this decade and come from that mindset that like churning out this cheapy, like you show a couple boobs, you show some blood, you know, you have like a crazed killer right? and that's all you need to do to make a movie like profitable and up until like the late 80s like they were i think and they probably still were after that through like video sales i'm actually i'm curious because i wonder i know that now like they always add in like dvd and like foreign but when you look at like older stuff you don't see that as much i wonder how much video sales like contributed to the money that these movies made back Mm. yeah that's a good question because obviously they weren't as obsessed with like that kind of data as we have been in the past 20 years right of like knowing and now it's even like crazier to track because you have to track like usually like several different streaming services and did you buy it on Google? Did you buy it on iTunes? Mm-hmm. You know, did you buy it from Walmart 
in like the you know discount bin and right how much of that data is reported back so i don't know right yeah um the best part about this thing to me was just like re-examining like that era from like a more critical standpoint of like being an adult as opposed to like mm-hmm. the active standpoint of watching them yeah. like as a child well it's one of the more interesting things about this podcast to me is like how often do either of us say i haven't watched this movie in right, you know i every, mean like the majority right of the every every single episode but it's like the idea that it's like we had feelings at one point in our lives about these movies or thought this one thing and then now later in life I think that's really interesting of the idea of going back and like it's the kind of you were talking about with Bledsoe last week about like like how he hasn't watched Get Shorty a second time after seeing right. it in 95 and, and we love that movie in 1995 I watched I've seen Get Shorty like thirty times in my life, probably. Like I've, I, yeah. uh, it's one of my favorite comedies. Like, but um, but yeah, the fact that he's never watched it again, it's like I, I do think, where well, you're right, like we have limited time, you know, and it's like um, but it's like I, I do think some of these second viewings are important, yeah, to kind of reexamine movies and almost like test them out, like over the course of years to see if they hold up because some things don't or how things change over time. And it's like the little things I pick up, like the shining, I, I you know, I've probably seen that 20 or 30 times in my life. And last time I was in the movie theater, there's like certain things I saw that I never realized before, right. you know? And I, I think that's a sign of a great movie is when you can go back and keep catching things. It's still enjoyable. And you keep catching things that you never noticed before, or like the way an actor does something or like, you know, something that you didn't notice in the background or, um, <clears throat> So, yeah, like, going back, and not that I had seen all of these, but it's, like, uh, going back and rewatching some of these, you know, and re-examining them, I think, was useful in a lot of ways. It's a good exercise. Just, just as a movie watcher, you right. know, like, just as somebody who... I mean, hopefully it's, like, entertaining to listen to. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So. I, yeah. Um, so... So that's it for uh, this list and for this concept. Um, uh, next week, or uh, sorry, in two weeks, um, the second and third week of November, and then the week of Thanksgiving, the last week of November, we'll be doing podcasts. And in two weeks, we'll be back with the top five David Cronenberg movies. So I guess we're going to ease our way out of horror. <laughs> um, and sure. then the uh, third week, um, uh, we're going to be doing... Uh, the most exciting current filmmakers uh, as a podcast. And Frank's going to talk about who he thinks is uh, currently making films that he's really excited about their next projects and the kind of things they're doing and in, in the films they've put out recently. And then the last week of the month, um, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we're going to start what we're going to be continuing all the way through December, which is at the end of the year, we're going to look at, the top five movies in 1969, 1979, 1989, and 1999, um, and cover the top five movies for each of those uh, years that end in nine. I actually haven't thought about any of those lists yet, so I'm actually pretty excited to yeah, like um, look at those those years. Yeah, I, I think like the not that they're random necessarily. Of course, they're not. Like they're you know, um, it's because they're you know whatever the. It's 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 50, good because you'll get more variety, right? Like, because I'll be looking at a wider expanse of things, except as opposed to like genre. Agreed. Genre right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and it's like uh, the more I think about like doing those, and I think about stuff for next year, it's like I, I think that's very interesting to me is to look at that variety as opposed to the, a little bit more rather than always doing yeah. genre stuff. Um, but so that's what we have coming up. Remember that you can um, email us any feedback, uh, you know, or if you have your own list ideas, we'll be starting a whole new lists um, starting in the new year. So if you have any ideas for lists, uh, please email us at two guys, five movies at yep. gmail.com. You can also contact us through our Facebook page. And then you can also contact us now through our Instagram uh, two guys, five movies where I'm probably going to like be posting mostly uh, Frank's uh, coaster drawings from the bar <laughs> um, for when he um, draws different things from movies and stuff like that. So um, so you can contact us in any of those ways. Thank you for listening. There's many of you that I know that have like, you know, ex- probably exclusively to some degree have been downloading these horror podcasts. So thank you. I hope you keep following us, um, as we move on to some different things and, um, have a great weekend. Yep. Thank you for listening. Have a good night.